Thank you. Good morning. All right, let's try that again. All right, good morning. Thank you, thank you. Geez, when I can hear the upper room better than I can hear down here, that's a problem. Some of you asked me about Easter. Let me just report. You see, uh, if you're interested in numbers, the numbers are all in your worship folder. Um, we had 1,380 people on campus for worship last week. Uh, the upper room, the upper room went great. Um, that is not just an Easter thing. That is now uh, another venue that we have. If you don't know about the upper room, it is a worship a venue during this second worship hour. Um, it is, the sermon is live streamed, but everything else about that experience is live. Live worship, live uh, welcome, every, everything else is, uh, is live. So that you're not just an observer, you're not watching church on TV, you're participating, uh, but just the sermon originates here. With our new building, we will have another venue, a 400-seat venue that will be available. So we'll be able to meet in, in three or maybe four different places, but we will have the technology that will allow us to not just stream into each location, but I can originate the sermon from any of the locations. So it really will be a game of where's the preacher today. <laughs> um, but that's going to that's gonna be exciting to see what, what God is up to. Uh, the staff was, our, our pastoral team was pretty pleased with, uh, with the way the day unfolded until on Tuesday in staff meeting, I reminded them that the next building won't be finished before next Easter. So we have another Easter with only this much space. So we've already started a one-year runway to make next Easter uh, a possibility, but it's an exciting thing to see what God is up to. And I would much rather be scrambling for parking spaces and chairs than closing down buildings because we don't have any need for them. Um, keep praying about what God is doing here because this is, um, this is an extraordinary place. And it is not because of us. It is because he has decided to do something among us. Don't take that for granted. We are in a series of messages from, from the Gospel of John. And while I committed to you that I'm going to teach through the Gospel of John... I told you that it would take a couple of years because we wouldn't go straight through. We would do it in segments. We, we did the first three chapters as a teaching series, and then we uh, did some other things. And now we've come back, and we're doing John chapters 4 through 8. I want to finish this segment today, and then we will move on to some other things. Uh, I've got two other series that, that will take us through the summer. And then uh, when we come back in the fall, we'll pick up with John chapter 9 and continue this exploration of the Gospel of John. It, is, uh, it has already been a fascinating study, but, but if you've read John start to finish, uh, we're, we're sort of just still laying the groundwork because the, the really good stuff is still to come. So, um, so we're going we're gonna to stay here, but I want us to finish uh, John chapter 8 today. Um, we're going to begin where we left off two weeks ago. Two weeks ago we saw Jesus with the woman caught in adultery. Uh, the first 11 chapters of this, uh, first 11 verses of this chapter. We're going to pick up with verse 12 and go all the way through verse 59, the end of this chapter. And you say, oh my goodness, that's a lot of verses. Listen, it's just one conversation. It'll be fine. All right. You don't have Easter plans today. You can just, you just be here till we finish and it'll be fine. 
There's somebody here for the very first time going, is he serious? Is, did, is that a thing here? All right. We've seen Jesus in the last couple of chapters. John is in what he calls the festival cycle. And that is he's, he's talking about Jesus in Jerusalem during the festival. We've seen Jesus, and, and right now we see him at what is called the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, the Feast of Tabernacles was when the, the Jewish people were, were told to live for a week in a makeshift housing. They would basically camp out for a week because the festival itself was, de- was designed to remind them of what it was like when Israel was a nomadic people. They had been freed from slavery in Egypt, but they were wandering in the wilderness, and they had to live out of tents as nomads. And so this Feast of Tabernacles, or Feast of Booths as it's called sometimes, was a, a reminder on an annual basis of that time when God sustained them, even though they didn't have any place that they could actually call home. Now, there's a lot of symbolism in the Feast of Tabernacles that was supposed to take you back to that experience and remind you of the provision of God. For example, uh, when, when they highlight bread as a part of the ritual of this celebration, it was a reminder that God had supernaturally provided for Israel in the desert by giving them manna every single day, six days a week for 40 years. In that moment, we see Jesus making the first of his great I am sayings that John records for us in his gospel. Jesus stands up and says, I am the bread of life. And there's a whole conversation and in and, and, and interplay back and forth between Jesus and the religious authorities because they, um, they think that he's incredibly arrogant for suggesting that he is uh, that he has an actual word from God. He said, I'm, I'm the bread of life. If you'll, if you'll consume me, spiritually speaking, if you'll take me in and let me provide the nutrition that, that your soul needs, you'll have life. Well, part of this festival was uh, a, a, a ritual of water. They would take a, a, a pitcher and, and ceremonially pour out a pitcher of water every day as a reminder, as a part of the, the festival, a reminder that God had supernaturally provided water in the desert over the course of 40 years. But they had added in later years uh, an extra pitcher that they poured out that didn't have anything in it. They went through the motions of pouring something out, but it was empty. And that was to symbolize that the promise of the Spirit of God being poured out on His people, uh, and often water is used as an image for the Spirit of God, they, this was a reminder that, that they didn't yet have everything that God had promised them. The promise of His Spirit had not yet come. Well, it was right at that moment as they're pouring out an empty pitcher where Jesus stands up and what does he say? I am the living water. Well, we're going to see him do that again in this passage because the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, it also was sometimes called the Feast of Lights. That was because in order to commemorate, to remind the people that God had led them through the wilderness in, in the form of a pillar of fire, they had four massive golden lamps that would be brought into the courtyard of the temple during this festival. And they would light those lamps and they would supplement that. They would bring in candelabras and, and other lamps and they would light this. 
the temple was, was lighted during this festival so brilliantly that Jewish tradition says that a woman living in a tent on the edge of the city could thread a needle in the middle of the night by the lights from the temple emanating over the entire city. Light was a big portion of this celebration because it symbolized God leading them from where they were to where they needed to be. So what do you think the next thing that's going to happen is Jesus is going to stand up and he's going to say, I am the light, the light of the whole world. That's what we find in in this chapter. This statement will be received uh, with about as much enthusiasm as the previous statements by those who were convinced that they knew the mind of God and they had it all down pat and they didn't need Jesus. Open your Bibles to John chapter 8. This business of light is fascinating. The Bible has, I looked, I didn't count, but there are literally hundreds of verses in both Old Testament and New Testament that relate light to God. In fact, I thought I'd have a real neat opening illustration. So I, I thought, I need the scientific definition of light. So I looked it up. Oh, my stars. Um, turns out light is a wave. But light is also a particle. So sometimes it behaves like a wave, but sometimes it behaves like a particle. And it all depends on where you're standing when you measure it. Light goes a certain speed, but in a vacuum it goes a little different speed. And I worked for about 30 minutes on this opening illustration and I thought, forget that. (laughs) I need like a children's dictionary. So I went and found a children's dictionary and I looked up light. And this made much better sense to me. The definition was light is that thing that, let you, that lets you see what's real. Wow. Light is that thing which lets you see what's real. Doesn't it make sense that the Bible from start to finish describes God in terms of light? Always making what's real known to us. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 16 says, God lives in unapproachable light. First John 1 John 1.5 simply says, God is light. James 1.17 says, God is the Father of lights who dispels darkness. Well, I only give you that background because I want you to see what this, how significant this moment is when Jesus steps up. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 12. We're going to look at verse 12 through 19 and see his witness of himself. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. The one who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, even if I am testifying about myself, my testimony is true because I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I, came, where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I'm not judging anyone, but even if I do judge, my judgment is true for I am not alone in it, but I am the father who sent me. Even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two people is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. So they were saying to him, 
where is your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. I am the light of the world. Now, this is going to sound very familiar. You're going to say, haven't we covered this material before? It's because, it feels familiar because when Jesus says these things, the Pharisees and the other religious leaders seem to always come back to their same arguments. I mean, look what they did here, which is exactly what they've done before. He says, I am the light of the world. And if anybody follows me, I will give them the light of life. And they go, well, that's not true. Why is it not true? Well, you did it wrong. Notice they don't debate Jesus about the content of his assertion about himself. What they do is they say, there's a legal process here. You have to have two witnesses and you're testifying on, on your own. So it's, in, it's invalid testimony. You, ha you don't have a second witness. Well, if you can remember a few weeks ago, we saw this same objection and Jesus gave a series of witnesses. He said, not only do I testify to myself, but there is the spirit of the father who testifies on my behalf. There is the word of God that testifies on my behalf. There, are, there, there is the testimony of John the Baptist who recognizes me and testifies on my behalf. And there are the miracles that you've seen me do, each one a sign pointing that I am who I say I am. There are plenty of witnesses. We've had this conversation. But here he makes a statement, I am the light of the world. And they don't say, well, no, you're not the light of the world. They say, you don't have another witness. They, they argue from the standpoint of legal procedure. Folks, this is, this is a guarantee that you're going to lose the battle if all you have to fall back on is Robert's rules of order. Here's the thing about light. Light is what we call a self-evident reality. In other words, you don't have to run tests. When you come in here on a Sunday morning, you don't have to run tests to see if there's light. You look, and if you can see anything, there's light. Light is self-evident. It doesn't require external confirmation. So Jesus has made a claim, I'm the light of the, earth, of the whole world. So that doesn't in, in, in any sense need any extra testimony, but he condescends and says, okay, uh, you say that your law requires a second witness. I have a second witness, the father who sent me. Okay, now we've been down this road before again uh, as well. Uh, what do they say? He, he goes on to this whole explanation that, that the father is, my, is also a witness to me. He, he, gives, he stands and makes my testimony valid. So they say in, in verse 19, where is your father? And Jesus says, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Here's the thing. He says, I'm the light. The light was shining right in front of them. And they said, no, it's not. And once you look square into the light and say it's not light, there's not really anything else that can be said. There's a barrier here to discipleship. I've called it discipleship barrier number one. And that barrier is self-righteousness. It is pointless to argue 
with someone who is so self-righteous that they can't imagine that they need anything from Jesus. Think about this. Before the Feast of Tabernacles, in fact, just days before, there had been a celebration of a single day that's called Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur means the Day of Atonement. It is that single day. Now, it it wasn't the same in Jesus' day because um, this is the day that the, the high priest would cleanse himself. He would offer a sacrifice for his own sins. And once his sins had been dealt with, he would typically go to the secret place, the Holy of Holies in the temple. There was a veil hanging there that separated the presence of God from, from everyone else. And he would, he would peel that veil back and slip in where he would offer a sacrifice on behalf of the nation and for their sins. Now, it wasn't exactly the same in Jesus' day because, guess what? The Ark of the Covenant, the place that God called his throne on earth, it had been lost. In this temple, in the time of Jesus, the Holy of Holies had no furniture in it. It was empty. There was no place to offer a sacrifice to. And so, so they'd had to come up with, with some substitutes. But see, but that was the thing. The Judaism of Jesus' day was hollow. It was a, a, a system of rituals that they practiced, but it, it, it had no meaning. It had no substance to it. Here, five days before, they would have had this day where, where a sacrifice is offered. Now, spiritually speaking, God's design in that day was that Israel would repent of their sins and recognize that their sins had to be dealt with by someone else, that they couldn't solve the problem of the human condition on their own. So you were supposed to approach the high day of atonement with this, uh, this brokenness that says we're, we're without hope unless God reaches down in grace and mercy and extends clean cleanliness to us because our sin keeps us separated from him forever. That was literally like five days before this conversation. How quickly have they already moved past the idea that we're sinners to the idea that we don't need anything from you. We're good to go. God likes us exactly the way we are. Don't you hear that in our generation? Preachers that are preaching false gospels will tell you on YouTube or wherever their chosen venue is, they'll say, God loves you. He loves you just the way you are. Yeah, God loves you just the way you are, but he loves you so much, he refuses to leave you just the way you are. He loves you while you're still a sinner. But it was never his plan to leave you in your sin. That's the whole point of good news. There's something better out there. We've got a culture that has stomped their foot and said, I don't care what anybody thinks about me. This is as good as it gets. I ain't changing. Well, all I can say to that is, there was a moment when I looked at my life and realized that if this is as good as it gets, I'm sunk. And if somebody doesn't come in 
and bring change to me, I had no hope. Jesus says, I'm the light of the whole world. But they were too self-righteous to receive that light. Look at the next verses, starting with verse 20. We're going to see his world versus their world. Verse 20 says these words. This is a little editorial insertion by John. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple area, and no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Then he said again to them, I am going away, and you will look for me and will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. And he was saying to them, you are from below, I'm from above. You are of this world, I'm not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Then they were saying to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, what have I even been saying to you from the beginning? Can can you feel the frustration there? Let's just talk about these and then, then we'll follow. It's, John tells us that Jesus was teaching in the treasury. Now, it won't surprise you to, to know that the way the temple was designed, it was a series of courtyards, and the treasury, there was a courtyard for the Gentiles, but that had long ago been abandoned. They'd turned that into a, a marketplace. They filled it with money changers and, and people selling animals and, and all kinds of supplies and souvenirs. Uh, the place where the Gentiles were supposed to come to seek the true God had been turned into an Oriental bazaar. But the next court was the court of the women. That's where a Jewish woman could come as she approached this, uh, the holy place. Then there's it, it, deeper into the temple, there was a court for men. Then there was the place of the sacrifices. And then there's the holy of holies where only God dwells. The treasury is located in the court of the women. The treasury is the place where they receive the offerings. Now, it won't surprise you to discover that the place where they received the offerings was the most accessible place in the in in the temple i mean they wanted everybody to be able to get to the place where they could turn in their money jesus is teaching in that area and and i think he's doing so because it made him more accessible there were people there were men that wanted to hear him teach but there were also women who wanted to hear him teach and so he he had presented himself now think about this he'd come all the way from heaven to earth He'd condescended to become human so that we could know the truth of what God was going to do for our salvation. It only makes sense that he would take up a spot in the temple that would be most accessible for the most number of people to come and hear him. He's treating that place in the temple almost like it's a portal into another world. You see, Jesus says, you can't go with me where I'm going because we're from two different worlds. Now... Verse 21, I'm going to go away and you will look for me and will die in your sin because where I am going, you cannot come. So they were saying, surely he will not kill himself. Now, remember, Jesus had had this similar conversation in a previous time where he said, I'm going and you can't follow. And because he's speaking on spiritual terms and they're listening on material terms, they regularly misunderstand. He says, you can't follow where I'm going. And they think, well, is he going to go? outside the country and live among the Gentiles, live among the pagans? Yeah, we don't want to follow him there. See, their, their, their minds were literally stuck in the mud of the earth. It's all they could think about. Well, here Jesus is again speaking in spiritual terms, but they're hearing him in physical terms. He says, where I'm going, you can't go. And they say, well, what is he talking about? Is he going to kill himself? 
I mean, is he threatening suicide? That's all they could imagine because they can't fathom any place that he might go that they, in their acceptability before God, couldn't go as well. He says, no, no, no. You are from below. I'm from above. You're from this world. I'm from somewhere else. But I'm here to announce that there is an entrance. There is a way from this world into my world. You see, in eternity, there is a massive cosmic divide between those who know God and those who don't know God. And that divide is unbreachable. The only way to get across it is in this life to attach yourself to Jesus because he's the one that has reached from one side of that cosmic division to the other side to make a a way possible to, to get there. They don't understand this. And it's not that they don't understand it, it's that they refuse to understand it. That's really discipleship barrier number two, a refusal to believe truth. Listen, belief in Jesus is the necessary passport to his world from our world. A refusal to believe in Jesus closes the door to heaven irrevocably. Sometimes we talk about an unforgivable sin. And it it throws people for a loop. There's something that you can't be forgiven for. And I say, listen, if you're worried about committing the unforgivable sin, then you haven't done it yet. Here's what the unforgivable sin is, simply put. It is to know the truth about Jesus and refuse to accept it. It's not that you misunderstand. It's not that you don't yet know. It's that, and, 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 and sometimes you have to look deep down because you say, well, I still have questions. Okay, you still have questions, but you know that what you've been told about Jesus is true. To see the truth and to reject it. And to do that often enough puts you in a place where God says, okay, I'm not going to knock on your door again. I won't be calling you up. No solicitations, no invitations. Nobody's going to bother you. You're content to be who you are. I'm going to allow that you'll never worry about committing the unforgivable sin if you have done that it will never cross your mind until the moment that you stand before God in judgment that's what's happening here they are refusing to believe what they know deep down is true everything about his life measures up to all of the standards that they've been told to look for and yet they don't like him why don't they like him because he calls them out in their sin. Well, look at verse 30. His lineage versus their lineage. This is where it gets really interesting. In verse 30, it says, As he said these things, many came to believe in him. Now that's encouraging. That sounds positive. That while he was having this debate with the religious leaders, there were some who believed in him. But understand the word believe here means just um, agreed with what he was saying. But Jesus is going to tell them how they show that their belief actually is something that has taken hold in their soul. Verse 31, he turns his attention to this group of those who have now said, I believe that, I believe that. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and 
and the truth will set you free. Now, it's fascinating because what Jesus is suggesting here is that uh, he's not telling them, if you believe in me, now I'm going to give you a list of to-dos so that you can sort of seal the deal. It's not that I believe in Jesus and then he gives me these things I have to do, and if I do them all, then I'll be saved. What he's saying is, if you believe in me and it is a belief that has taken root in your soul, let me tell you how that will play out. Let me tell you what that will look like. It will look like a person who puts himself in my word and stays there, who becomes my disciple, who follows in my steps. And then verse 33, they answered him. See, he's just said the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. Now the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son sets you free, you really will be free. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are seeking to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak of the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you have heard from your father. All right. I I, I want to read this whole passage, but I got to do this a a chunk at a time. Look at this. He says, the truth will set you free. And they instantly bow up to him because when he says, when, when somebody says, the truth will set you free, the implication is you're somehow enslaved to something that needs to be set free from. So when Jesus says, I'm the truth, I'll give you the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they go, whoa, 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 whoa. We're Abraham's descendants. We've never been enslaved by anyone. Seriously? I mean, they're in the middle of a festival designed to remind them of when they came out of 400 years as slaves to the Egyptians. They wandered in the desert for 40 years, but ended up going into the land of Canaan where they didn't clear it out the way God instructed them. And they spent generations being harassed and enslaved by Canaanites the, the nation of Israel, the northern ten tribes, were carried off and disappeared into history when they were made slaves by the Assyrians. The nation of Judah was carried into exile because they were slaves to the Babylonians who were followed by the Persians who then uh, saw the people of God enslaved under the Greeks and then the Syrians and now the Romans. You've never been in slavery. You've been in slavery more days than you've not been in slavery. But see, here's the thing about self-righteousness. We rewrite history so that we can tell the story so that we're the hero. Folks, you can't get to heaven being the hero. In fact, you can't get to heaven unless you humble yourself before the hero. Say, I really need Jesus to get to heaven? You need Jesus to get to Walmart. (laughs) But here they they bow up against him. You know, we're, we've never been slaves. We're Abraham's descendants. And he says, you know, I get that. 
But I'm, I'm telling you, everyone who commits sin, see, he keeps trying to drag them back to this spiritual level conversation. Everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son does remain. What does that mean? He means that in this world that God created, guess what? The sun shines down on the righteous and the unrighteous. The rain falls and gives blessing and relief to the righteous and the unrighteous. What he's saying is that in this world, God has created it so that, that those who are slaves to sin, as well as those who are sons of God, we all sort of live in the house together. But it was at, at, at some point in history, at some point in the future, uh, the slaves have to leave the house. They don't have any ownership there. They don't belong there. But the son gets to stay in the house. What's he mean? When this world is gone and a new world presents, the father says the new world is for his sons and daughters. The slaves don't get to stay. Those that have rejected Jesus, those that are willing to be in sin, they choose that. They'll be separated somewhere else. And he's talking to these religious leaders. And that's the problem. The well, let, let's, let's finish the passage because I want you to see the point he's going to be making here is that the son, that sons reflect fathers. Look at verse, um, verse 36. So if the son sets you free, you really will be free. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, meaning I know that you're physically descended from Abraham, yet you are seeking to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak of the things which I have seen with my father, therefore you also do the things which you have heard from your father. Well, what do they say? They answer and say, Abraham is our father. See, they're still thinking physically. <laughs> Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. In other words, sons reflect fathers. Haven't you ever seen those pictures? You know, dad is in the backyard and he's mowing, he's pushing the mower. And, and about six feet behind him with a little bubble mower is the three-year-old that's just sort of marching along. Uh, the little girl who drags the chair up to the, to the sink so that she can do the dishes alongside mommy. There's something natural about the little ones wanting to imitate uh, mom and dad. There's a, there's a reflection there. When somebody has a baby, I've never quite understood this, but because no baby looks like anybody to me. <laughs> I mean, I, I can't see it. But what do we do? Somebody comes in with a new baby and, and it's brand new and they're like, oh, he looks just like his daddy. Really? <laughs> but as they grow, then okay, now I begin to see it. And that's the, the fact. There is a, a similarity. We see elements of the father in the son as he grows. That's the language that, that Jesus is using here. And he's saying, if you, you, I know you're physically descended from Abraham, but if you were spiritually descended from Abraham, you would have characteristics in your life that matched the righteousness that Abraham had. He says, but as it is, you're seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. Now, see, they're still thinking Abraham. This is where Jesus gets them. They said to him, we were not born as a result of sexual immorality. We have one father, God. Now, where, where does that come from? Why the reference to sexual immorality in the middle of this conversation? Well, let me tell you. 
it's because they knew the story of his birth. They knew the whispers. They knew that Mary and Joseph got married after she was visibly pregnant. They knew that Joseph wasn't the father. What they didn't know was who the real father was. So they do, this is called an ad hominem attack. This is what happens when you're losing an argument. You just attack the person. If you want an illustration of that, just go onto Twitter every single day. <laughs> they throw this out there because they're, they're saying, well, they're, they're, they've been waiting for this. They, he's talking about fatherhood and they say, well, at least we know who our father is. But Jesus doesn't take the bait. He just says, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came forth from God and am here, for I have not even come on my own, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I say the truth, you do not believe me. Sons reflect fathers. They were all proud that Abraham was their father, and then they get real uppity, and they say, God is our father. And Jesus goes, no, no, I can tell from the family resemblance. <laughs> Your father is the devil. And he's marked by two things and always has been from the beginning. He's marked by lies and he's marked by murder. We know he's marked by lies because he was the one that slipped into the Garden of Eden and lied to Eve about what God had instructed. We're not told in Genesis chapter 4, the, during the story of Cain and Abel, we're not told that, that the enemy had a, a role in that. But if he was a murderer from the beginning, the suggestion is that he had some role to play in Cain killing his brother Abel the very first murder recorded in human history. He said, you're living out characteristics of your father. You say, listen, I, I, I don't want that for myself. Well, here's the thing. We live in a culture that says, if you want to change, you got to turn over a new leaf. You got you to be more disciplined. You have to go to this self-help course. You have to read this book. No, if you want to be different, you need a new father. Because his characteristics will begin to be played out in your life. Sons reflect fathers, but there's a discipleship barrier here. Number three, I've called it casual belief or self-delusion. As long as we think that we are good with God just the way we are, it's impossible for us to be serious about following Jesus. And here's the thing. I hate to say this out loud, but I feel like I need to. Satanic counterfeits in our generation are most often disguised as church leaders. Satanic counterfeits are often found as false teaching pastors, as worldly-minded denominational officials, as ministry leaders who lead a double life. You see, the thing here is you can't judge by surface presentation. What determines your father is if you, at the core of your soul, exhibit the characteristics of your father. You will always, but you can identify your father by what characteristics are found deep inside. 
well, nobody knows anything that I do. It's, it's, just, it's just private. I mean, I, I, have, I have some sins that I, that I hold on to, but, but, but nobody knows about them, you tell yourself. Well, there's, a, there's a, an eerie verse in the Bible that says, um, all things will eventually come to light. You see, if God is light, if Jesus is the light of the world, the one thing I know is that there is no dark corner, there is no deep shadow, there is no locked closet in your soul that will not be one day flooded by light. So now's the time to get it cleaned out. Well, there's his behavior versus their blasphemy. Look in verse 46. Jesus says, which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? The one who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. The Jews answered and said to him, do we not rightly say that you're a Samaritan and you have a demon? Okay, they've already called him illegitimate. Now they call him a Samaritan, which is the worst, uh, the worst insult a Jewish person could extend to another Jew. And then they call him, they say that he's demon-possessed. Jesus ignores the Samaritan insult, but he goes for the, the demon comment. He answers in verse 49, I do not have a demon. On the contrary, I honor my father and you dishonor me. But I'm not seeking my glory. There is one who seeks it and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone follows my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets as well. And yet you say, if anyone follows my word, he will never taste of death. Jesus is talking in spiritual terms. They're hearing him in physical terms. When he says you'll never taste death, he's talking about spiritual death. And they say, you're crazy. Abraham died. All the prophets died. Everybody dies. Verse 53, you're not greater than our father Abraham who died, are you? The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know me, know him, and I know him. If I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I follow his word. Your father Abraham was overjoyed that he would see my day, and he saw it and rejoiced. Now, he's speaking in spiritual terms. They're hearing in physical terms. And so they go, wait, what? You know Abraham? So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Let me tell you about this passage. He, I've called it transparency, tomb, and time. When it comes to transparency, he challenges them to go find a sin. I mean, they've accused him of, of being a Samaritan. They've accused him of having a demon. Okay, here's the challenge. Jesus says, take the entire law of Moses. Take every commandment. Test my life by the letter and the spirit, the sum and the substance, the precepts and the principles of the, of the law. 
He said, take the prophets and the writings of the Old Testament. In fact, take the whole Old Testament. Lay that infallible measuring stick alongside my life to see if you can detect the slightest deviation from the upright and the true. He challenged them to go to his home, to question those that had lived with him, his mother, his siblings, to see if he had ever been anything less than perfect. He dared them to go to Nazareth to talk to anyone and everyone that had done business with him to see if he'd ever been anything but honest and diligent and generous and exemplary. He said, go to Nazareth and Nain and Cana and Capernaum to Bethsaida, to, to Bethesda, and to trace his footsteps from his past uh, through his years of public ministry. Talk to men, women, and children to see if they could find the slightest flaw in his conduct. Had he ever done anything he shouldn't have done? Had he ever not done something that he ought to have done? Had he ever said anything untrue or taught anything false? Had he ever behaved lustfully or lost his temper or spoken covetously? Had he ever promised anything that he didn't keep? Could you find one consistency between his private life and his public life? He said, you go look and come back and tell me what you find. Listen, there's not a person in this room that would be willing to lay that challenge down. Think about it. There's a reason when we write resumes, we are very careful to pick who the references are that we put on the end. Because we don't want people just talking to anybody and everybody in our past. Because there's some things we just soon not have brought to light. Jesus says, you measure me against perfection. And then you come tell me what you find. He was, had an absolute transparency about his life. But then his relation to the tomb, man, this is awesome. He says, if you follow my word, you will never taste of death. And they lost their minds. Everybody dies. Now, he's talking about the kind of death that really matters. John Phillips tells a story. He's a commentator of Scripture. He tells a story about a friend of his that was a preacher on the island of Jamaica. A number of years ago, he said that there was a storm at sea off the coast of the island, and there was a ship that was in distress. It was sending out SOS signals to the land, but the waves were, were too, uh, too outrageous for anybody to attempt to rescue. As the sun was going down, a lifeboat put out from shore trying to make it through the waves to see if any of the sailors on that ship were were still possibly able to be saved. He said it seemed as if the island waited, the, waited all night long to, to hear the news. They watched and, and, and prayed. The next morning, this preacher friend of his, he says he set off for the town to see what had happened. And as he arrived on the edge of town, he found a young newsboy standing on the corner of the street selling newspapers. And the headline across the front page in a banner font simply said one word saved Philip says my friend was curious so he bought the paper and pointed to the word saved and said to the little boy Sonny do you know what that word means and the boy looked at him in astonishment sure mister it means those people never died we use that word we use it in a spiritual sense. We talk about getting saved. I 
getting saved, that's, that's strange language. Sometimes it offends people. They say, well, I'm not lost. Well, <laughs> every time you've ever been lost, you were lost at some point before you realized you were lost. So even if you don't think you're lost, I'm here to tell you based on the authority of the Word of God, if you don't know Jesus, you're lost. And when you're lost, you need to be saved. But in this sense, saved doesn't mean that we just give you a 10-step self-improvement guide. To be saved means that Jesus comes into your life and he puts himself in you so that the death that matters, the death that separates us eternally from God, that death will never happen to you. Sure, mister, I know what the word saved means. It means those people never died. I've preached funerals hundreds of times. Sometimes they're for people who didn't know Jesus. Man, those are God-awful, miserable times to, to be a pastor. The best you can do is preach Jesus to the people that are alive. Because that's the only time that you have the opportunity to make a choice. But see, I've preached a lot of funerals for people who were saved. Those are actually pretty sweet times. Because I tell them that this casket, this shell of a body, that's just for us to have something to, to grieve over. But if Joe lying there is a believer in Jesus, then Joe's not really lying there, is he? We had somebody in our church last Sunday. She came to church and she said, Pastor, my sweet mama died at 7 o'clock this morning. I said, and, and you're here at church? And she goes, yeah, this is where she'd want me to be. And I said, well, it's where you need to be. But as you grieve, think about the Easter mama's having. Because she wasn't lost. She was saved. It makes all the difference in the world. Then he says, I'm the Lord over time. They hear him talk about Abraham like you knew Abraham. And they say, you're not even 50 years old. How can you say that you know Abraham? And verse 58 is one of the greatest verses in the New Testament. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. You say the, the grammar there feels a little awkward. Yeah. But it's not about a grammar lesson, is it? It's a lesson about the fact that this man clearly belonged to eternity and not time. And he is making here an unmistakable claim to being divine God himself. You see that name, I am, it's where we get the name Yahweh. It's, it's from the Hebrew verb for, for being. 
that name was so sacred that when a scribe was writing, when he was copying the text of the Old Testament, and he came to the name Yahweh, he would lay down his pen and he would take a new pen. They only wrote the letters of the name Yahweh every single time with a brand new pen that had never been used before. When they read the scriptures out loud, they would be reading along and, and, and the, the one reading to the, to the congregation, he would read. And when he would come to the name of God, he would bow his head and pause in silent worship. And the congregation would bow their heads and pause because they knew that the name required that response. It was never spoken. It was never written except with a brand new pen. And in worship, every time the name appeared in the text, it evoked a moment of worship. Jesus is not just uh, stepping over the line. He is, he is sailing way out of bounds as far as these Jewish leaders are concerned. Before Abraham was... I am. This is, the clear, this is the clearest claim anywhere in the New Testament for Jesus saying, I am God. And how you respond or don't respond to me determines everything else in your life. But you want to see the last discipleship barrier? It's the denial of deity. Verse 59, therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and left the temple grounds. He makes a clear declaration that he is God, and they decide to kill him. You say, well, I've never committed blasphemy. Listen, you've committed blasphemy every time you've ever told somebody, well, I think Jesus, he was a good man, probably a great teacher. Anytime you minimize Jesus to be something less than he is, you commit blasphemy. He, he doesn't leave us that option. You're not allowed to accept him as a teacher or a good moral example. That's not good enough. He is either God Almighty in human flesh, solving the human condition on our behalf, or he's a flippin' lunatic. If he's a lunatic, then we've got to throw the whole Bible out. We've got to throw 2,000 years of Christian history out. We've got to dump the whole business because none of it's true. And yet, there are people in this room who can say, I've experienced a changed life because of him. I know experientially it's true. I know because of the way God speaks to me in His Word that it's true. And so to deny that it's true is a very dangerous path to go down. As we come to the end of this section of John, really Jesus doesn't leave us with any option except the two that are right before us in this chapter. To stand with the self-righteous, self-deluded religious leaders 
who blaspheme God in order to make themselves the hero of the story. That's one choice. Or to humble ourselves and to present ourselves to Jesus Christ as sinners so that he will redeem us and save us out of our lostness. You know that old Billy Joel song, he says he'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. Billy Joel was a singer. (laughs) The reality of it is he's got it all backwards. Because when we get to heaven, no sinners will be laughing and no saints will be crying. That's the choice in front of you. If you need to know Jesus, now's the time. Father, thank you so much. Your word is true and powerful. It stirs us in ways that we have difficulty even understanding. But Father, in this moment, I pray that you would be so very real here that anybody who needs to know you would recognize, maybe for the first time, their lostness and understand that there is a Son who sets us free, who makes us sons, who saves us. And Father, out of all this conversation with those who didn't receive Jesus, I ask that 2,000 years later there will be people here who do receive Jesus. Father, make yourself known to us. Draw us together as a people called Evergreen. Mark us with your Spirit. Seal us as followers of Jesus. Father, we ask for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.